0: So we begin our series on Hebrews 13 which is the conclusion of our Hebrews series which we started last year and um, you might tell from just what, uh, what Linda just read out that um, Hebrews 13 is filled with a whole series of ethical statements, one after the other, kind of the way the epistles often end um, in the New Testament and so we've pulled out five of the ethical statements and that's what we're going to look at over the next five weeks. And while they might seem just like a kind of a collection of general Christian teaching, it does relate to the other 12 chapters, because the other 12 chapters are essentially about the gospel. So it's not hard to see where the application comes from. And so the focus of my talk this morning is on being free from the love of money, verses 5 and 6. So that's mainly what I'm going to jump down to. And to begin my... um, Talk about being free from the love of money. I want to talk about sexual sin. In the Bible, sexual sin comes from the Greek word porneia, and the Bible defines it as a surrendering of sexual purity, of last sexual activity outside the context of marriage. Listen to Jesus' words uh, from uh, Matthew 19 where he draws a boundary around marriage. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And in these words Jesus cuts through Roman, Greek, even Jewish culture and says all the things that you've understood from the past about you know, standards for marriage and sexual sin. Well, I'm actually drawing a higher bar here. This is, what, this is my standards. These are God's standards. He shows how his standards for sexual morality even surpass King David and the great prophets. Kings who had had hundreds of wives and concubines and lovers. Jesus is the king of righteousness his standards of holiness are God's standards. And by quoting Genesis here, he's drawing big lines across the scriptures. He reminds us that this has always been God's view since the man and the woman walked around the Garden of Eden. And Jesus' words harmoniously link to these big themes that even conclude in the book of Revelation, where we see that in heaven uh, is eternity, And it's a bit like uh, a, a wedding reception. So this is great images that just run all the way through the Bible. A big wedding banquet, a feast that goes on for eternity. You might hate wedding banquets, but this will be a good one. You won't be sitting next to the awkward person. So earthly marriage is not only important for its own sake, but because it reflects the gospel. Any distortion of marriage is a distortion of the gospel, therefore. And when you get married in a church, the celebrant quotes Jesus and quotes the, the apostles' writing and draws these boundaries and, the, and the, the couples stand there and they say, I'm committing to this, these, these are my standards too, this is what we're going to do, and they say that before we, the congregation and before God. And if you're married in the church... You've made this covenant. You've even signed a legal document to the government, but you've also, more importantly, made it to God that you'll be faithful to that. And so to engage in sexual activity, to lower your boundaries outside of that, that image that Jesus has given us, the picture, it's idolatry and it's sin. And people say, oh, the church always goes on about sexual sin. That's all you ever hear about. Well, if you've been to Mary Creek for three, three and a half years, you will know that it's not true here, is it? We don't always go on about it. But I have to say, probably we should talk about it more because, um, you know, it is important. And also, some people say it's no, the, the sexual sin is no different than any other kind of sin. But I actually don't know that that's quite right. And I don't even think you think that, and I don't even think society thinks that. That's why there's been so much outrage around the Royal Commission into Child Sex Abuse. Because we know how serious sexual sin is when people take advantage of other people. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God, Who gives you his spirit. So God really does hate sexual sin. And just as Jesus stared down the Roman and the Greek and the Jewish cultures around him and said, I've got a higher standard. My ways are not like your ways. We today, in 2017, are forced to make a decision as Christians, whether or not we stand with Jesus or whether we stand with the mainstream culture. Now, the thing is, we're all sexual sinners. There's no such thing as a, a person, uh, or, or a Christian especially, who's, who can claim to be without sexual sin. We all need forgiveness. We all need to grow in our holiness over, over our lives. It's a lifelong project we, we do with God. And I know that stuff happens in our lives. So we've all got stuff, burdens we carry around about our past, mistakes that we've made. And if you carry around a terrible burden like that and mistakes you've made, you need to know that you can be forgiven. That if you confess your sins, if you repent and you turn away, you don't just live in the blindness of your your sexual sin. If you you actually confess it out loud, that Jesus will forgive you. And today, if we remember Pentecost, we need to praise God for for the fact that He's given us his Holy Spirit so that we're not alone as we do. We're not struggling on our own, but we're struggling in his strength. And you can have hope that in your eternal life with God that you can be free from your um, burden. You can be free from sexual sin. You can be free from the sexualization of women. You can be free from pornography. You can be free from lust. You can be free from abuse, you can be free from dysfunctional sexual relationships, there'll be no more sex even in heaven. No need because the fallen sex that we experience now, the gift that God has given us which is is now fallen, um, which is also a shadow of the intimacy that we can have with God, actually we will have that perfect intimacy so we won't need sex anymore. Now that I've got your attention, I want, you to point out, I want to point out a theme to you in the Bible, which you may or may not have seen before, which is this. There is lust for sex and there is greed for money. And the two things are linked often in the Bible. They're vices that are paired together often. In fact, we have it in this passage. You'll see from verse 4. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God would judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And you might think, well, that's just a coincidence. But listen, there's more. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 to 11, uh, that we should not associate with sexually immoral Christians. He said it's actually okay to associate with sexually immoral non-Christians, but not with Christians. Um, who are sexually immoral, or lovers of money as well. Don't associate with Christians who are lovers of money either. In Ephesians 4 verse 19, he, he says that people who have had their hearts hardened have given themselves over to sensuality and impurity and are full of greed as well. So what is the link between lust and greed? It is both the sexually immoral and those who are greedy for money who chase a narrow form of self-gratification that takes them outside of the good gifts that God has given them. So God has given you a wife, for example, but instead of being grateful to him for that wife that you've been given, you want another. So you go looking for more. For single people, God has given you friends, for example. He's given you a church community, a family through whom you can receive intimacy and friendship and support. But instead of being grateful to God for his good provision, you want more. This is not enough. So in your lust, you set up a Tinder account and you find someone to sleep with. In the same way, God has given you a job that pays well. But after a while, this is not enough. And you become hungry for a pay rise. And you do everything you can to get the highest paying job. Even if it means you don't have any more time left for your family or your church or your friends. Or worse, your hunger for more wealth drives you to do something illegal. Like fiddle the books or dodge your tax. In both lust and greed, you are accusing God of being incompetent as a provider. You're saying... You don't know what you're doing, God. I need more than what you've given me. And therefore, it shows that you're not really committed to God himself. We should be free from the love of money and learn to be content with what we have. Remember what Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, 24. And then he goes on to say more. And in fact, it seems like the Hebrews, write, person who wrote Hebrews is aware of this passage. So this is from Matthew 6, 25. This is a kind of an expanded version of what Jesus says. He says, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about where you're going to get your food from. Do not worry about the health of your body. Do not spend too long thinking about your outfit for today. It's not that these things are not important. But don't you think your life is more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store their seed away in the barns for the future. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Stop worrying so much. Are you not worth more to God than the birds? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And don't worry so much about your looks. Gee, you're so obsessed putting so much effort into fashion and appearance. Look at the flowers in the field. Look at how they grow. They do not work hard to look the way they do, making clothes all day. Yet I tell you that even King Solomon, with all his money and all of his fashion houses and his splendour and his gold and his wealth, was dressed not as beautifully as one of these little flowers. If that is how God clothes even the little green grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, and mowed up and put in the compost bin, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not become unhealthily obsessed about food or drink or clothes. The pagans obsess over these things. But God, your heavenly Father, knows that you need them. He knows that food and clothing is important. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has had enough trouble of its own. For 17 years, I've, I've worked in ministry and I've had a ministry wage for that time, which has been quite a lot of variety in amounts. <laughs> uh, most, of, most of my ministry life I've worked part time, so I think uh, probably for, for a good 10 of those years, but no, no, no. 13 or, or so of those years, I worked work between two and a half days and four days a week. Joe worked as well, when, from, so from the time we were married, had both incomes. And so, We've never really struggled financially, I would say. I don't think there's ever been a time where Joe and I have looked at each other and thought, oh, I don't know how we can survive. We went on a, you know, a glorious income and many of our peers who went into full-time kind of professions um, raced ahead of us in, in terms of worldly wealth and were able to afford nicer cars and maybe a deposit for a house and all those sort of things. But... Through all that time, and especially when I worked for Mustard Schools Ministry, which, is a, which was a, you know, structured like a kind of not-for-profit in that we had to raise our, our, our funds through donors and stuff, each month we'd have the board meeting and I'd sit around with the board members and we'd look at the, you know, the finances and it would always be pretty line ball each month. You'd never know if in a few months' time we'd have to cut wages or cut staff or, or whatever. Um, but that's just been my lifestyle for 17 years. I'm, I'm used to that. That's just how I am, you know. And um, that's just reality for a church worker and for not-for-profit workers too. And even for people who are working in for-profit uh, industry, you, you, your career is never always guaranteed. Is that your job is never guaranteed. Um, who knows? The company could go down or whatever. You could get sacked. At different times... The giving has been stronger and weaker in the ministries I've been involved in, and in two thousand and eight, there was the GFC. We saw all these people who were donors pull back their money, and everyone freaked out. But I've always been strongly aware of God's provision for me through all of that time. When Joe and I were at St Hilary's, um, you know, we we lived in a few two different houses, but the second house we lived in in um, you Kew, know, a family approached us and said, um, you know, would you like to rent our house? Because we, you know, I think um, we had to move out of the place we were in, I can't remember the series of events, sequence of events. But anyway, this family approached us and it was like a three bedroom unit in Kew. And they, but they offered it to us like at about $200 cheaper than the market value because they wanted to serve us. And there was a great sense of God's provision in that. And Joe and I were just so blessed to be able to, to be able to afford to live close to the church. And then when we came to Mary Creek, um, again through the, the generosity of some close Christian friends and family, we were able to even afford to buy a house in North Detroit, which we never was ever on our radar, but enabled us to be able to live close to the church and to be able to do the ministry that we were hoping to do, which was amazing. So we have a strong sense of God's provision in our lives. Um, I trust God that he will provide, not necessarily in the way I expect. It's not like I was sitting around with some picture of some outcome and then God provided, but it was just a a, a sense of not worrying that, that God will provide what we need when we need it. And this gives me so much joy And also, I feel like it's changed my heart a little bit, or a lot, in that I don't feel like my possessions are really mine. They're they're maybe for my use right this second, but I've got a strong sense of holding on to things lightly because really they're God's possessions to be used for his glory. And I think this is what... We need, we, we're to aim for you know this, this sense of being free from the love of money. Everyone in the church, actually, should be like this. From not just our church, but Christians in general. The Bible is clear about this idea of being free from the love of money. Even the bishops have to be. It's a qualification. 1 Timothy 3 says... A bishop is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. What's the problem with loving money? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. And you know if you are free from the love of money... When money, It just becomes a means of meeting an end rather than a driving motivation for your life. And the passage that we have says, if you're free from the love of money, then you'll reach contentment. <laughs> the lover of money grows in anxiety, never will be happy, but the person who is free from the love of money grows in contentment. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness and contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And we should be content because we actually have the ultimate possession, which is the continual presence of God in our life. This passage from Hebrews quotes Joshua 1.5, we think that's where he's getting it from, and Psalm 118, verse 6, to show that those who belong to God have nothing to worry about in terms of their need because they always have the presence of God with them. Nothing that the world can give can improve on that. Even if you're living in a slum, you have the Holy Spirit. You can celebrate Pentecost. And this is what we're doing today. On top of that, God also provides for your physical needs. Even if you're in a slum, you can trust in that. Nothing can satisfy the person who wants more and more. If you're not content with a moderate portion of ice cream you want two scoops, you want three scoops, you will just keep filling yourself with more and more ice cream. The person with a three bedroom house will want a fourth bedroom. But the person who has set limits to their desire so as to accept what they have been given without protesting has expelled from their heart the love of money. So the basis for such contentment is God's promise of his ever present help. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And as Psalm 118 is saying, we will have the power to overcome fear when we feel assured of God's help. And we begin to become greedy when we mistrust God. If we think he will give up on us, then we start to covet things. We break the 10th commandment Thou shalt not covet. And as Martin Luther says, you can't break commandments two to ten without breaking one commandment one first. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. So whether you covet sex or whether you covet money, either way you have sinned because you have made these things your God. But God keeps his covenant to provide for his people. So we don't need to worry. We can say confidently with Psalm 118 and Hebrews 13, verse 5, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So what are some things you can do to help yourself to be free from the love of money? Don't just say, I don't even think about money. It's not an issue for me because I think that's a way of being not free from the love of money. You know, by not thinking about it, you're actually being selfish. So here's five things you can do. First of all, you can become more organised with your money. I know some of you are brilliant at this. You know, there are, we've got a, a, economists in the room. You guys are brilliant with and, you know, financial advisors or you know, stockbrokers. You, you've got your finances in order. The rest of us are hopeless. Let's get our finances in order because then we can know how to use it wisely. Secondly, clear our debts. Pay your debts. Clear your credit card. These are just basic things, but it's a way to not be controlled by money. Thirdly, organise your giving. Giving financially to church, giving financially to the poor, to mission and ministries, looking out for others in the community who need money. I know people already do that in this church, that there, when people have been financially in need, there have been people in this church to help each other out financially, which is really good. A new thing I've been thinking about is carrying cash in your pocket or in your wallet, uh, not so that you can buy it with the coffee, but in case you need to give it away to someone. It's very hard to give, uh, you know, a homeless person, for example, who's desperate for some food or, or something, money, if you, you can't swipe your f with a homeless person, can you? So carrying cash, that's part of being organised, to be free with your money. Fourthly, you can share your possessions. Open your house to others, if you've got a nice house, a car that you don't need, or whatever it is. And fifthly, a way you can... Um, be free from the love of money is to question your own work priorities you know the most common thing we hear in this community is i'm busy i'm busy i'm busy i'm busy i'm busy i'm busy do you need to be in the job you're in maybe you don't maybe you're in it not just for the career but because you're you're enslaved to the to the wage maybe you could take a lesser job and earn a bit less so you've got more time for relationships and people and god There is only one thing that we really possess. Think about this. That is most precious to us. And that is our own lives. It's the the thing that is worth the most. More than jewels, more than real estate, more than a high-paying job. Our own lives are worth the most to us. And if you want to know how to be free from the love of money, know that you can do this because... Jesus gave up the very thing that was most precious, his own life, so that you can have eternal life. (coughs) He was stripped naked so that you could be clothed, clothed not just with garments but in righteousness. He went hungry and thirsty on the cross. Why? So that you could eat from the tree of life so that you could drink the divine water of the Holy Spirit from which you will never be thirsty again a spring of water welling up to eternal life he died in your place so that you could be free let's pray for that Lord God we pray that uh, we can hand over to you the things that we covet um, whether um, that's um, sex, or whether it's money, or whatever it is. And we pray that we can repent of those things, confess those things, turn away, and then and embrace the freedom that you offer us and you've given to us, that you died for, to be free from the love of money. And thank you that we can have that um, now and into eternity. Amen.